Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the next hour here on WFMU, Freeform Station of the Nation out of Jersey City in that great state. That's New Jersey, by the way. If you're in the U.S., happy Labor Day. Hope you have enjoyed this uh, traditional end to the summer season. And uh, I don't know, if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, happy happy spring, I guess. Uh, we're just heading into fall. Anyway, it's wherever you are, it's great to have you listening, present, future. Maybe you're listening in the past. Who knows? Uh, I've got a really interesting interview to share with you this evening with Coco Crummy, who is... Uh, has written a new book called Optimal Illusions, The False Promise of Optimization. And I'm going to get to this interview shortly, but I want to tell you um, a little bit about the premise of the book before we dive in. Uh, and, And you'll see why, because the interview starts with a little bit of context about Coco's background. Uh, So here's the thing. Coco Crummy, you will hear her describe her own background in a moment, but she is an MIT PhD. She's a data scientist. She was working in Silicon Valley and her career prospects had really opened up and she decided to leave. And uh, she now lives, as I understand, most of the time in a remote, on a remote island in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, I think she still does some data science, but she's mostly out of the Silicon Valley ecosystem. And she's written this book. She's taken a step back and she's written this book basically asking, why are we trying to optimize everything? You know, in, in, the, in the belly of the beast, in the belly of the big tech beast in Silicon Valley, everything is about making things more efficient, more optimized uh, to scale it. That's a word you hear a lot in the tech industry. Will this scale? Meaning it's great if you can get something to work for, for, for one little context, one instance, or for, for one handful of users or small community of users. Can you scale it to a thousand X, to 10,000 X, to what it is today? That's when it gets interesting to the venture capitalists, the scale. Um, maybe you have created something that is specific to a place that is localized to a neighborhood or a local community, a town, or, 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 just, or just one region. Um, Silicon Valley says, you know, to optimize this, to, to really scale it, we need to make this free of any constraints to be in any one place. Can this work anywhere? Can we make it, can, as we're scaling it to 10,000x, can we make it so that it works anywhere and everywhere? And finally, Coco brings up uh, in, in this culture of optimization, this lack of slack, as she puts it. I'm not talking about the messaging system that was bought by Salesforce. I'm talking about what slack used to mean, which was a little bit of a buffer in a system, meaning uh, things don't have to be exactly, uh, they don't have to fit exactly into their container, whether that container is a calendar or an algorithm or something else. There's a little bit of a buffer. There's a little bit of slack so that things can you know, be flexible. Well, this came up, this idea of, of, of uh, scale, uh, the, the, the lack of place, and lack of slack. These three uh, concepts in this book, uh, Optimal Illusions, came up a couple of years ago when I spoke with Tim Mon about his uh, sci-fi novel called Infinite Detail. You can go to WFMU.org and listen to that interview talking about uh, uh, Mon's sci-fi novel. It's a dystopia set in England, and we got to talking about how he came up with the idea of this future dystopia, and he told a story of being on a container ship in the middle of the Pacific Ocean that um, was being driven by an algorithm out of Scandinavia. This is all from, from memory. I believe I'm, I'm getting the details right there. But, but I remember saying to Tim in that interview, doesn't it feel like our global supply chain just has no 
buffer in it anymore. There's no, I don't know if I use the word slack, but basically I said, it just feels like everything is wound so tight. There's no more slack in this system globally. Everything has been optimized and optimized and optimized so that any, any little perturbation can really throw the thing out of whack. Well, of course, about a year or two later, what did we see in the Suez Canal? Remember that, that giant container ship ever given? This is two years ago, and it went sideways. Literally, it went sideways in the canal. And, and the, the global supply chain network shut down because one ship clogged up the Suez Canal. There was no slack in the system. And by the way, that thing, the reason it clogged up the Suez Canal is because it was out of scale. That thing has, was that, that ship was way out of scale to what ships used to be when they, when they built the canal. And of course, it was bringing loads and loads of products that are helping people access whatever they want from anywhere in the world without regard to any place or locality. My point is that the culture of optimization, if you start looking around, you can see the, 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 the challenges and sometimes the problems that we face because of this overbearing uh, obsession that our economy has, thanks to the leaders in, in Silicon Valley, on optimization, on making everything super efficient, on scaling things, removing a sense of place, and, uh, and, and, and you see, and, and taking out any slack in the system, and you see that both in this Ever Given and in other examples we're going to talk about in this interview. So Coco Crummy left her, her local prospects there in Silicon Valley to decamp to the Pacific Northwest in part so that she could write this book, reflecting on what does it mean for us to be so obsessed as an economy, as a world, with optimization. So I hope that gives you a little bit of context as we go into this interview. Uh, we are going to cover some examples. We're going to get into farming a little bit, which is um, certainly an area that's an industry that has been subject to a lot of optimization over the last couple of generations. And uh, we'll get into some other stuff as well. So uh, we're going to play this interview. If you want to join in the live listener chat, go to WFMU.org, click playlist and comments. And if you're listening in the future, go to tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H tonic.fm. And click the playlist link for the September 4, 2023 show, because that's where we are as I'm saying these words. Let's go ahead and listen to my interview now with Coco Crummy here on Tectonic on WFMU. Coco Crummy, welcome to Tectonic. Hi, Mark. Glad to be here. It's great to have you on the show. I enjoyed reading your new book, Optimal Illusions, The False Promise of Optimization. This is a thoughtful book about how we got to the place that we're in now with a society that is hell-bent on optimizing everything and what we might do to get ourselves out of this. Before we get to optimization, I think some context is in order. Tell me a little bit about your background because I think that's really important for listeners to understand before we talk about the book itself. You have a doctorate from MIT, and you have previously spent some time in Silicon Valley, which is no longer where you are. Can you say a little bit about your education and career arc up to this point? Well, I grew up in the Bay Area, in Berkeley and San Francisco, sort of as it was on the cusp of this tech boom, or maybe a, a prior tech boom, I suppose in some ways I was steeped in kind of watching this or preliminary language of optimization kind of come to the fore. After that, I decamped to the East Coast, where I'd never really been before, but I went there both for undergrad and after kind of a brief stint between undergrad and grad school back in San Francisco working for a startup that went on to be acquired by Google. I returned to MIT for, for my PhD. And when I finished that up, I promptly hopped back to the West Coast. And it was only, you know, after spending a, a couple years there 
back in San Francisco working for another startup that I really began to fill in the the kind of middle of the country and um, spend more time there. And some of those stories do end up in this book. I spent, you know, a number of years in Silicon Valley running data science teams, founding data science teams um, within startups, founding my own company that's a small consultancy that works on data science, engineering, and strategy with various R&D teams and tech companies. And over those years, I started to feel this tension between the world that I was inhabiting through my work, through the computer screen, through these mathematical models, and the world that seemed to be pulling me and the the kind of real world that I was experiencing with these road trips out to the Midwest to talk to farmers, for example. And as part of that disillusionment, I suppose, I bought a small rundown cabin on a remote island in the Pacific Northwest, never intending to be here full time. I guess here is the, the spoiler. So you know, over the course of several years, I made my way, you know, from being full-time in San Francisco to being almost full-time, you know, having this as my home base. And that's one of the stories that I trace in the book. And it's a story of growing disillusionment that I find so interesting. There you are in the heart of the tech industry in Silicon Valley you have a successful career and you're poised to go to even greater heights, making a lot of money and doing all sorts of influential things in the tech industry. And you make it known to someone you said was a venture capitalist you had a conversation with. You make it known to this person that you were going to head out, <laughs> that you were going to leave a lot of these opportunities on the table and go up to the Pacific Northwest, to that island. You're right that the venture capitalist responds, the only way I can explain it is that you must be an ethical person or something. (laughs) I just love that response, that that's the only possible explanation that the venture capitalist can come up with, that you must be ethical or something. It's almost (laughs) as though ethics is this disease that you've caught, and so you have to leave town. When When you shared your disillusionment, with people in San Francisco and elsewhere in the tech industry. Did you get that response fairly often that people were at a loss to describe why you would leave some of these opportunities? Yeah. And I must, um, it, it was maybe an unfair dig at, it's so easy to to bash venture capitalists because especially now they represent kind of the apotheosis of, you know, all we find evil about about the tech world. But Six, seven years ago, you know, it's hard to kind of put that lens on now, but it was a very different kind of sentiment that collectively we had towards tech and Silicon Valley, right? Everybody wanted to go work and, you know, get jobs at Google, work in tech, be a venture capitalist. There was this reverence for the whole industry and there was a a mystique about it. And so, yes, I think... Back then, the notion that somebody would want to just leave when there were not only personally lucrative opportunities right in front of you, there was also this narrative that what we collectively were doing was of utmost importance to the world's, you know, thriving and and survival and betterment. And I think that narrative still exists, by the way, in Silicon Valley today. It just feels a lot more hollow to the rest of the world. And it's this approach to work and society and the economy that you call optimization that is the focus of this book, Optimal Illusions. Near the end of the book, actually, I thought you gave a a good definition of how you view optimization. You write that it's the oppression of a singular way of seeing. This idea of an oppressive singular way of seeing infuses this book where you're again and again, you're reminding us that to view everything as a set of metrics to be optimized can have some locally helpful effects, but in the long run, it really comes at a cost. 
Can you give some examples of what you're talking about in terms of optimization and this this singular way of seeing? Yeah. I mean, I think it's helpful perhaps to start with some concrete examples of what optimization as a technology has helped us do. So one of the first examples I use is of farming and agriculture, at least as it's played out in the United States over the last couple hundred years. I look at a particular family farm and how over the course of a few generations, they've increased by orders of magnitude the amount of a crop that an acre of land can produce. And that has been enabled by optimizing technologies, beginning with directed plant breeding to mechanical harvesting equipment that allows one person to, in a day, harvest hundreds or even thousands of acres, where in the past that that would have taken hundreds of people, to optimizations like the commodity markets that enable trade and the setting of prices for these crops among buyers and sellers around the world. So all of that has, as a, as a technology, this set of optimizations has had incredible effects. So we have the cheapest food and the most broadly available diverse set of crops that we've had at any point in human history. It's really incredible. And I talk about Norman Borlaug, who was one of the pioneers of this kind of new generation of plant breeding. He's associated with what's called the Green Revolution. And he won the Nobel Prize. He garnered all kinds of accolades. He's credited with saving over a billion lives. So we have this technology or the set of technologies that has enabled speed, efficiency, productivity, more nutritious and more diverse crops and and foods around the world. But in order to do that, it's required seeing things, seeing these systems less and less as these multifaceted forces and interacting parts and more as a set of metrics to that you know can be sped up or can be made more productive and that's where the effects of these technologies in the material world has bled over into kind of our philosophical world or our way of seeing that the minute we start to see a field as a dollar you're equating to a dollar value we start to think more and more well, how can we increase the dollar value of that field? And less and less about the things that farmers have traditionally you know, thought about in parallel. Obviously, they're running businesses, they're feeding their own families, um, they want their land to be productive, but they also want their land to continue to produce for many generations into the future. They're also cognizant of the water supplies that not only feed or water their land, but, you know, their children might swim in that might flow downstream to to other farmers' fields. They're cognizant of the social implications of making certain choices on their land. So all of those other values start to fade a little bit into the background. The more and more we adopt this philosophy or this way of seeing of optimization. I like what you're saying about the integrated mindset, the one where you're looking at the situation holistically with all of these overlapping and interwoven concerns, challenges, goals. And that's in great contrast to this deconstructed and atomized and reductionist view that's required in order to optimize for one or two metrics. Like you say, the the productivity per acre and or the dollar value of the crops. The more you optimize on those one or two things, the less you're really paying attention to the whole, the integrated whole. I thought you had a really interesting case study with a beet farmer. I think his name was Bob. Yes. Here's Bob, the beet farmer, who has been on this, his family has been farming on the same plot of land for 
I forget, five or six generations. So it's one of these family farms. And the big company, the big multinational seed company comes around and says, we'd like you to use our seeds to grow GMO crops, to genetically modified beets. And this is all from memory. I'm not quoting your book. But as I remember it, Bob has the meeting and says, nope, not going to do it. My grandfather didn't need GMO crops and gosh darn it, <laughs> I'm not going to do it either. So no thank you. And so they go away, but they keep asking, keep asking, and all of Bob's neighbors all go over to GMO crops. And I think Bob's resistance to GMO, it wasn't so much the health effects of eating GMO foods. I think it was more about the business model of these seed companies that want to get you in their intellectual property ecosystem, you know, where you're buying their seeds and then you use their weed killers and their technologies and you're locked in to basically be a, a vassal farmer to this giant company rather than having your own agency as a farmer as, as his previous generations of his family had done. So that's where things stood when you left to drive back to the West Coast after one of these road trips. And then a year or two later, you reached out to Bob again, and um, he gave you some news, right? Yeah. What's interesting about GMO, a lot of row crops, um, and certainly in sugar beets, is cultivating a GMO seed actually makes the farmer's life easier. So these companies have succeeded largely because they've targeted the farmers who are their customers, right? And have said, how can we improve these plants? Not necessarily for the end consumer's preferences like flavor or nutrition, but really to make their direct customer, which is the farmer, their jobs easier and more productive. And what these GMO seeds for beets let you do, they're, they're what's called Roundup Ready. Um, so they accept the herbicide Roundup, which blasts all the weeds that might be in the field and allow a farmer to do a lot fewer um, applications of, of chemicals to, to kill those weeds. So under the old system, the, the non-GMO seeds, Bob's life was actually a lot more difficult, right? He had to spray every week. These chemicals are, are nasty. They're not good for you. They're not good for the end consumer, but they're especially not good for the farmer who has to put them down and breathe them in as he's applying them to his field. And I should say the other peculiarity of this particular crop in this particular place, which is sugar beets in the northern stretches of the United States Plains, is that there, there are these family operations, but they're, I wouldn't say controlled by, but they're all form part of these cooperatives. And oftentimes the cooperative vote kind of outweighs any what any individual farmer wants to do or, um, or his preferences. And that is ultimately what ended up happening here. So as an individual farmer, it's very difficult to say, hey, I'm going to go my own way. So that's what ended up happening here is that Bob decided it was just too much work, too much effort. It was basically impossible. It would have bankrupt him to go against the grain. And so he adopted the GMO seeds after all. Right. He did. And when you spoke to him, he said, actually, the seed company was right. It is less work. <laughs> so... There was at least that benefit to Bob so far. Yeah, I think he said that with a certain sadness, right? One of the things I talk about later in the book is that optimizations are easier to put in place than to unwind. It's much easier to shoehorn everybody into this one system. Whereas if five years down the road, a couple of farmers decide, hey, we want to go back or we want to all do things a little bit differently. That's much more difficult once you have this optimization in place. So I think part of the sadness was knowing that he not only made this decision for himself, but most likely for the future generations that would succeed him on the farm.
and we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'm your host. We are halfway through my interview with Coco Crummy talking about her new book, Optimal Illusions, The False Promise of Optimization. We're having a good conversation on the WFMU comment board. You can find it by going to the website, wfmu.org, and then clicking playlist and comments. Or if you're on the WFMU mobile app, you can find the chat board there as well. It's a great app. Let's go ahead and listen to the second half of my interview with Coco Crummy here on Tectonic on WFMU. You write about sadness also later in the book. You write about, quote, a sadness that's shared broadly across America today, the feeling that unchecked growth isn't serving us. And I wonder if the sadness that Bob is feeling there is part of that, that he had a sense that his decision, though it may have been the only decision he could make at that point, is part of this larger trend in the country to make things scale and make them go faster and digitize everything and connect everything into these large systems run by the tech companies and other multinational corporations. And overall, it creates a society that, as you write, isn't serving us. There's something else that happens when we optimize. I was interested to see a couple of examples of this in your book. You write about how when a system is fully mapped out, the metrics are determined, and the optimization drive begins, things tend to get very boring. Mm -hmm. And one really interesting example you talk about is poker. You have a friend who still plays competitive poker, but used to be much more active. I can't remember if you use this exact phrase, but if I remember right, your, your friend, when you asked why they're not playing as much poker. They said, well, poker has been solved by the algorithms and, and data. It's been moneyballed to death. And so it's, it's boring. And then elsewhere in the book, you have a chapter where you're talking to Alan Gilmer, who's this guy in Texas, who early in his career was this very enterprising, was he a wildcatter? Is that the right term for him? He wasn't, um, that is the right term. He wasn't a wildcatter per se, but but certainly enterprising. Going out and exploring new oil or mapping, I guess, new oil fields and really exploring the frontiers of, of oil drilling in Texas. And now that the whole area has been mapped, he's he's still got a company and is still doing oil-related activities. But you write about his, again, the, the creeping sadness <laughs> that Gilmer seems to feel now that the territory has been mapped in a way the problem has been solved or at least fully defined. And now the oil industry, at least there in Texas, is in a phase of optimization. Is that part of what you see as, as the book puts it, the false promise of optimization? Is that part of it that optimization says, we're going to create the perfect world, but along the way, as we optimize and optimize the mystery fades away and things get a little boring. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think there is this feeling of sadness that sadness and malaise too, that infuses the book. And I think infuses kind of our, our modern era where we're so hell bent on solving things. Right. And I, I see this language um, coming out of Silicon Valley a lot we're we're so hell bent on on solving that we we kind of get caught up in in this quest and in this narrow frame or down a rabbit hole however you want to put it and when we kind of look up around <laughs> we realize oh there's there's more to the world than this right and i i think that's part of this disconnect that we've created this these rabbit holes, these frames, this obsession with solving and, and growth. 
And that really narrows our focus. And then when we do look up, we, we feel like we've lost something that's outside of that, that frame. One, one of the things I talk about in the ways in which I tie in this mathematical concept of, of optimization to kind of our felt concept is the idea that, you know, when you're setting up an optimization, you, you define these constraints and it's the constraints or that frame, that picture frame around what you want to optimize that makes for a successful optimization. So a lot of our work, um, whether it's in the oil industry or in writing algorithms for, for news recommendations for technology companies, is in setting up that, that frame and, and defining the, the function. And once we've done that, it's, it's like the rules are known, right? <laughs> and the optimization, it's just this, this one thing. We just keep plugging away. We keep playing poker and making more money but it's not, it's not wild. It's not this feeling of exploration anymore. We've already bounded it. And that I think is part of what we're feeling today. Here's a paradox that I think relates to that and is at the heart of the book as I read it, that we're optimizing, we're reaching for greater powers of control to, as you say, to, to frame the problem and then to solve it. And in this bid to achieve this extra power and to exercise it, the paradox is we actually become less powerful. You write some tantalizing sentences on this, but maybe this can be your next book, Coco, <laughs> because I was hoping you would take this a little deeper, this, this paradox of power leading to a kind of weakness. Here's what you wrote. Our urge to solve has grown in tandem with our inability to directly influence solutions. Wow, that's, a, that's an interesting observation. And you go further. You're talking about climate change and our, our attempts to, quote unquote, solve climate change. You write, we're powerless to actually solve climate because all of us are disconnected from the larger mechanisms of the world. Our solutions shift from the practical and concrete to the abstract and apocalyptic. So what I see you saying here is that as we frame the problem and we reach for the solution, we necessarily have to cut out all the rest of the reality that sits outside of that frame. And that's, in fact, where the answer lies every time. <laughs> because if you cut off most of reality in order to optimize for one little thing, you're, you're cutting off most of your access to, to the truth. That's what I found to be one of the key insights of this book, Optimal Illusions, is that the very act of optimizing sets us up for failure, either down the road, you know, later on, or in a larger sense, you know, we can optimize for that one thing. We can optimize for growth if that's what we really want. But if you want anything else, like a healthy economy, healthy society, any of those other good things that, that require an integrated worldview, we're going to fail. Yeah, that's, um, love how you tied together <laughs> a few different threads there. Um, I'll just temper it a little bit by saying, I don't think, um, I've been accused of being a Luddite and so on and so forth. Um, hey, can I stop you there for one second? Yeah. I love being called a Luddite. I wish more <laughs> people would call me a Luddite. I need to get a card printed out. That's, that's a whole other rant. But anyway, please, Coco, be proud to be called a Luddite. Yeah, you know, I, I'm not sure I'm, I'm ready to be a card-carrying Luddite. I, I think it's, I don't actually know enough about the, the original Luddites, um, but I think they were, they had a little bit more of a point of view than necessarily I do. I, for me, it's deciding not to adopt certain technologies is just sort of a, a preference or an aesthetic choice rather than a, than a political one. I, okay, that's, that's fair. But I was going to say, I think, I think Optimal Illusions is very much a Luddite book. 
That's interesting. And, and certainly you're not the first to say that. Um, and I mean that in a good way. <laughs> right. Cause you're a, you're a card carrying Luddite. Well, there's um, a, there's a book called blood in the machine by Brian Merchant. Yes. And Brian is going to be on the show in a few weeks and we're going to be talking about this and I'm reading the book now and you know, the, the Luddites, they were neither pro nor anti-technology. What they were fighting for was a more just society, a more just economy. They were against exploitation. And I think what you're pointing out in Optimal Illusions fits right into that, where you're saying, look, we can build these systems that work well in one direction, but we have to be cognizant of these externalities. I think you're arguing for people to be treated well, for the earth and, you know, ecosystems to be treated with respect for you're, you're advocating for a healthier society in this book. Correct. Um, but I'm not saying let's get rid of technology. Let's get rid of optimization whole hog. I, I think there are areas in which the mathematics of optimization is hugely important. Designing safer cars, safer bridges, identifying medicines that work for different diseases. Yes, all of these things come with costs, but I think in, in certain discrete domains, you know, if we're simply talking about costs and benefits, right, optimization or the technology of optimization has been a, a huge boon. What I rail against is optimization as a broader way of seeing. And I think you're, you're correct in saying, you know, it's cut us off. And I'd go even farther than that in saying that one of the ways you brought up climate, right? And so much of our current discourse on climate is focused on this very, it's real, but it's abstract to most people, this concept of carbon dioxide in the, the atmosphere. And by focusing our discussion so much on this, this abstraction, ultimately, we feel disconnected from any ability to, like, if I make a change in my life, right, how does that relate to the carbon dioxide in the global atmosphere? It's, it's impossible to calculate in any reasonable way. And I think part of what you were getting at, too, with this this idea of powerlessness, right, which which I think we do, we do feel now, is that increasingly a smaller and smaller number of individuals are responsible for these optimizations that increasingly run our world. So, you know, you even look in kind of the elite Silicon Valley institutions that are developing algorithms for X or Y or Z, and it's a smaller and smaller number of computer scientists or mathematicians who are, you know, developing these models and then they're padded with layers and layers of other code and abstractions such that somebody working in the same company may not even understand what the algorithm at the core of it is, is doing. You know, you need only look at Google's very simple algorithm to surface web pages has metastasized over, over time is such that even, you know, two people working on different branches of that algorithm might not might not really understand or be able to describe why it's surfacing different results in different circumstances. Yeah, I think metastasize is the right word to use with uh, Google products. <laughs> That's a whole other show. Well, this brings up the obvious question of what do we do? And I was happy to see you take some time at the end of the book talking about possible solutions, you wrote about the two main approaches to try to solve overly optimized systems, whether it's farming or you, you have a chapter about bison. People are trying to bring back the American bison. This pattern of trying to de-optimize can be applied to many aspects of, of life today. And the two responses are, number one, to try to control the de-optimizing process, to, to unwind it, as you say, but optimally. And you say the, the problem there is that it further entrenches our optimization mindset. 
so using optimization to de-optimize is, is probably not a winning strategy. The other response you write is just to opt out completely, to try to achieve a blank slate and start over. The challenge there is that in doing that, try, trying to look for a, a blank slate, some starting point of the Garden of Eden or some, some idyllic past point, we have to start by idealizing that past reference point. And there is no past perfect point to start with. And even if there was, how would we get back there? <laughs> how would we unwind things to get back there? Is that a fair way of describing the two main approaches? And what was this third way that you'd like to propose as an alternative? Yeah, that that is fair. And you know, I'm hesitant in a book that <laughs> criticizes and um, solutionism and, and you know, over reliance on solving for things. Um, to I had a lot of trouble, I'll be honest, coming up with uh, ideas or or prescriptively um, offering solutions because I I certainly don't have any. I'm I'm primarily curious about what comes next and how do we get out of this rut that we seem to be in? And I, I am optimistic that, you know, we will get out of it. And I think part of what I described towards the end of the book are these sentiments or kind of yearnings that I see expressed in increasingly um, in, in different ways and, you know, across different populations and, and people. But I, I think there's a yearning for some of the things that we've lost to optimization. And I identify those earlier on in the book as a loss of slack or downtime, the sort of rest and rejuvenation that helps systems grow and grow and evolve. Uh, that's one thing we've lost. Another thing we've lost to optimization is a sense of place or particulars. That's true in the, the story of these farmers, but it's also true in many of our daily lives as we see things commoditized, as we see chain restaurants kind of take over, as companies become consolidated and you know we work for fewer and fewer brands rather than kind of the, the diversity of small businesses that might've existed in the past. And the third thing that we've lost to optimization, and I think there's increasingly a, a yearning to return to, is a sense of scale or connectedness between different scales. So we see that in people increasingly wanting to know where their food comes from, in wanting to know their communities and invest in their communities rather than caring more about kind of the what's happening at a at a federal level or at an international level. So that's really how I, I see or, or try to get at um, what comes next is through, you know, what are we seeking? What, what, what feels like it's missing? Because I think that's collectively the, the direction we'll, we'll be moving in in the coming decades. And that opens up another book or a series of books for you, Coco, in the future. I, I would like to see where you go with this as you follow this train of thought, because as you say, this is going to be the direction that we're likely to head, looking for some way to, if not solve, at least survive this over-optimized moment that we're in. The book is called Optimal Illusions, The False Promise of Optimization by my guest today, Coco Crummy. Coco, thanks so much for writing a thoughtful book, and I appreciate you taking this time to talk about it. Thank you so much, Mark. Really enjoyed it. And we're back. If you are just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I will remain your host temporarily until the top of the hour in 12 minutes when it's not Dave Mandel this evening, it's Dave the Spaz. 
filling in for Dave Mandel. So you definitely want to stay tuned to hear Dave here on WFMU. I want to say thanks again to Coco Crummy for spending time speaking with me about Optimal Illusions, the false promise of optimization, which is just out now. As I said, very thoughtful book and uh, a lot to think about. We had a great head. We are still having a great conversation on the comment board. Um, this is one with, with some links. There was a... Um, Ken from Hyde Park posted a link to an optimized radio stream from 2016, the year before Tectonic started, and that was put together by Vicki Bennett, people like us, with a lot of contributors uh, of sounds and music and everything else uh, on the theme of optimization. So WFMU, as usual, was there first with its own... uh, thoughtful set of resources that you can find free on the website. Go to the chat board this evening and you can see the link to that optimized uh, radio stream from 2016. As for Coco Crummy's definition, I thought it was really well put. Optimization is the oppression of a singular way of seeing. She didn't, she didn't literally define it that way, but that was a phrase that she used in the book that we talked about in the interview. And I think that's, that's something to keep an eye out for in the coming week, friends. See where you can note uh, where in, in life or work, uh, you're shopping, you're traveling, uh, you're in an office, the oppression of a singular way of seeing. When a system gets obsessed with one measurement, then it's going to dispense with all of the other knowledge and wisdom and truth that's out there that could actually make things better in, in a more holistic sense. Uh, to, to that very point, on the comment board, Rolando writes the following. It's a real concern. My team are always bringing me better, faster, more efficient ways of improving tech for a school but often the proposals and suggestions would remove students' sense of worth and well-being. How so? Well, firstly, it puts the process and procedure before learning and discovering. I have to remind them, I don't want Mr. Busy Man and my team. I want my team to have less to do, not to be busy optimizing endlessly. And so there's one, and maybe if you have kids or niece or nephew in a school, maybe, maybe you've experienced this as well. Maybe you've observed a culture of optimization in education. That's just one area of life we can talk about. But Rolando is writing about this where the, the team, I, I don't know what team he's on, but what, whatever team he's on is bringing in technology and they're saying, but this is going to optimize things. There, we have to optimize this further, make it faster, make it scale more. Make us increase these metrics. And Rolando's sitting there thinking, well, why are we running the school in the first place? Wasn't it about education? <laughs> and, I, and this is something that Coco Crummy points out in the book, and she, she alluded to it in the interview, that the real danger of optimization, as she puts it, is that we get locked into a certain way of seeing. And how I put it is, you, you get so obsessed with optimizing, you forget the reason why you're optimizing that thing in the first place. We're forgetting the reason why. Why did we want to bring the technology into the school? Wasn't it for educating the kids better? Another good example came from the Associated Press. I don't know if you heard anything about this story, but it made national news. This is out of Kentucky. Here's an AP headline. Kentucky School District rushes to fix bus route snarl that canceled classes and outraged parents. So here's what happened. There's a school district in Kentucky that was starting school. I guess they started in, they must have started in early August. Uh, and so they're, they're starting this school year, this year's school year. And they had, I guess they had a shortage of bus drivers. And because they had a shortage of bus drivers, they had to figure out how to get all the kids picked up by the school buses that they did have. 
and efficiently transport those kids to the school. And so they, they, they contracted with an AI company. And um, this, this company, what was it called? Alpha Route. This is a Massachusetts-based company. You can go to the website and you can see that they're very proudly boasting on their website about how they use artificial intelligence to figure out routes, transportation routes. And it's staffed with MIT grads, kind of like me and Coco Crummy. Well, not like me, but Coco Crummy and I both went to MIT and so did the Alpha Route staff. Anyway, what happened and why this made national news is because whatever happened after Alpha Route redid the bus routes, the buses went all kinds of crazy quilt routes all over the county, all left and right and back and forth in a completely fakakta, can I say that Yiddish word on the air, uh, set of routes that had kids uh, getting home hours late. Some kids didn't get home after that, that first or second day of school until 10 p.m. at night. And so the, the parents were just beside themselves. First, they didn't know where the kids were. And then the kid comes home and they're exhausted and they're uh, starving. They've been on a bus for three or four hours or five hours. So it was this, it was this huge blow up. And, and the reason, this, this is how the Associated Press reported it. The reason was that the Kentucky School District decided to optimize by using AI. Let's optimize by using AI. And of course, of course, AI often does not work. And I don't mean to dump on Alpha Route. It, it, for their part, by the way, the company says, and I don't really understand this, but they said, we didn't use AI for that project. I, maybe it wasn't their fault. I'll give, them that, I'll give them that credit, but I just don't understand how an AI company can say, it wasn't our fault, we weren't using AI. Well, then what were you using? Anyway, my point is that they were so, the school district was so intent on using technology to optimize these bus routes. It sounds like, to me, no one stood, st took a step back and said, wait a second, why are we in this fix in the first place? Because we have a shortage of buses? How about, I know this is radical, but this is crazy. You know, I'm a Luddite and everything, and this is crazy, but rather than paying a tech company what was it? I think it was over $200,000 to use their AI, except that they didn't use AI, to redo the bus routes and completely screw it up. Rather than that, could you take a pot of money, six figures of money, and actually, here comes the radical bit, could you pay the bus drivers a little bit more so that you get a few more bus drivers who actually want to work for those wages? Crazy, right? Rather than contracting with AI, maybe we should pay our bus drivers more. But what do I know? I'm a Luddite. I'm completely out of touch, right? Uh, that's the problem. When we are optimizing everything, we forget why we got into this in the first place. Why don't you pay people more? There's your radical solution for, the, for this evening. Friends, you got a little bit of homework. Uh, your homework is, for the next week, I want you to avoid Apple Abandon Amazon, forget Facebook, and whatever you do, whatever you do, friends, get off Google. You have been listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. And uh, listen, there's, a, there's an anniversary today, speaking of over-optimization and obsession and uh, bad outcomes, that company that I want you to get off of, Google, they turned 25 years old today. They were founded on September 4, 1998. 25-year-old company, and uh, sorry guys, but I'm not celebrating. Not celebrating that, but what I am celebrating is just a couple of days ago was the 20-year anniversary of Badger Badger, and those old-timers among us will know exactly what Badger Badger is. It was this viral, one of the first viral videos that uh, showed Badgers dancing and it was just uh, someone saying badger, 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 and then mushroom, mushroom. And those of you who were there 20 years ago, you know this. And then snake, snake. And I thought I would play this in honor of Badger Badger's 20th birthday. That was just, I think, two days ago. But Badger Badger is, uh, I've found, rather unlistenable. So instead of that, I'm going to play 
a takeoff of Badger Badger, which is more listenable. I always like this version of it. And, uh, and it's not exactly 20 years old, but it, we're referring to Badger Badger, which is 20 years old. And that's what we're going to listen to now. Have a great week, everybody, and stay tuned for the great Dave the Spaz. See you next time. Inside, come inside. There behind the glass stands a real blade of grass. Be careful as you pass. Move along, move along. Come inside, the show's about to start. Guaranteed to blow your head apart. Rest assured, don't get your money's worth. With this show, it happened all right. You gotta see the show. It's a dynamo. You gotta see the show. It's rock and roll. Die.
Hello, everybody. I'm David the Spaz. Guest hosting. It's complicated. For the vacationing Dave Mandel. Actually, it's not so complicated for me. It's kind of simple. Everything else in my life is complicated. This, this, this is going to go just fine. I have an idea. The playlist is up and running with the graphics and all that over at WFMU.org. But since the music I'm going to be playing tonight, I'll tell you right now, is falls between 67 and 73. What if we went for that kind of radio experience? So if you like, you can go to the, the playlist and look at it and see what's getting played. Or for the rest of you, close your phone, turn off the computer, walk away, and just kind of like... Just for one hour, just just listen to what it sounds like without having to see what it looks like. Because then you know right away. You know, like in the first few notes, do I want to stick with it? Do I want to, you know, you like it, you stay with it. Don't like it, you bail. Come back later. This is Doc Severinsen from his Doc Severinsen's Closet LP. He's 96, by the way. He's doing okay. Other songs on there is, uh, come on. Surfer Girl, Power to the People, and Abbey Road Medley. And I guess Doc, besides the music, probably liked all the all the speckled, uh, uh, bejeweled speckled capes that the prog rock guys were wearing. So I, I could see the appeal there. Emerson, Lake, and Palmer with Carnival. I thought it was Carnival for 50 years. <clears throat> see, it's complicated. That's... Uh, that's uh, Carn- Carnival 9, First Impression, Part 2. Lyrics by Pete Sinfeld from King Crimson. More on him later. Progressive Soul was a thing, known also as Prog Soul. Came around around the same time that Soul really, uh, really caught fire, late 60s. And there were a bunch of Prog Soul hits. Here's a classic one from 1969, right here on It's Complicated. 